So I don't know if many of you know this about me, but long before, actually not terribly long, but long before uh, my family and I went off to seminary, they were older, my children, long before I became a pastor, minister of the gospel, uh, there was a time in my life where I got into some legal trouble. I figure it's a good way to start. The... And I remember uh, during one of the f- first few meetings with uh, my attorney, we finally sat down at a, a table in a big room and he said, Todd, <clears throat> it's time for us to shuck some corn. And I I didn't grow up on a farm. I didn't know what shucking corn meant. And he knew that. So he said, uh, he said, Todd, it's time for us to get to business. It's time for, this this is when the rubber meets the road. And he did say this. He said, it's not going to be fun, but it's going to be good. That's what our passage is about this morning. Shucking corn. Not literally. But it's not necessarily a whole bunch of fun, but it is really, really good. Because if you've, if you've been a part of the previous sermons that, that we've experienced here or had here in the past few weeks with Hal and Rob and this letter of James to people in the church different churches scattered about, you already know that James in this letter is communicated to his brothers and sisters in Christ, to his flock, to his churches, to the people that he's pastoring. He's already communicated that he loves them and he cares for them, that he's concerned for them. Uh, And we already know by this part of the letter that James wants to make sure that His people, his flock, God's people, he wants to make sure that they don't wander from the faith. He wants to make sure that they know, they understand what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we think about this passage, it's good for you to remember why... uh, why we're studying this letter. You do realize that we, as a body of Christ here at Redeemer, Presbyterian Church, all of us who gathered here this morning, if you're a member or a a long-time visitor, you know that we don't exist for ourselves, right? If if we are Christians, that means that that we've come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way and that, that the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He's given us everything that we need to live life. All the resources of the Creator is given to us in and through Christ Jesus. And He just didn't give that to us so that we could sit back and relax. We're called to share the blessings of Christ with our friends, with our neighbors, and with the world. We're called to extend the kingdom of God 
to extend it in Athens, to extend it across the state, to, to extend it across the globe. And if we're going to do this, we have to live out what we believe to be true. We have to put our faith in action. I'd like to say it like this. If it is true that we've been saved by grace through faith, that this is not from ourselves, that it's a gift of God, not through works so that no man can boast. If this is true, and I believe that's true, and I know many of you believe that's true, if that is true, we're not simply going to talk about what we believe. We're going to live it out in our lives. So it's time for us to shuck some corn. James chapter 2, verses 14. We'll read through the end of that chapter. Let's read together. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled... Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For even as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. This is God's word. It's his holy word. It's inspired. It's inerrant. And it's infallible. And it's good for us. Let's pray. Our great God, our heavenly Father, the one who has come to your people in the person of Jesus Christ, and we have we've understood that we are needy. And yet you've met our needs in the living word, Jesus Christ. And in this living word, this word that we have just read this morning, we thank you for it. We ask that you would bless us with it, I pray that um, you would work mightily in our hearts and in our minds, that for those of us who know Christ Jesus, I pray that you would um, strengthen us, encourage us, empower us with a living faith. And for those who, who may not know you, would you open up their hearts that they would see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And the power of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, Amen. So, look, this this is uh, in in some respects this is a very easy passage. The main idea is is really clear. The main idea is that Christian faith, 
without doing, without obedience. It's, it's not a living faith. It's a dead faith. Verse 17, James says, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. Verse 20, faith apart from works is useless. Verse 26, so also faith apart from works is dead. So look, what, we're, what I'd like to try to do, and every time I thought I had this sermon finished it kind of changed on me, which I think is going to be good. We'll see. But I want to talk about, first, I want to talk about the nature of faith. And particularly, because it's real clear in this passage, what faith is not and what faith is. And, and I want to bring it to your attention this way. Almost every Sunday, we, we say the Apostles' Creed together. It's not every Sunday, but a lot of Sundays. We, we, we confess out loud, I believe. Right? I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Realize if, if all you say is speak it and, and don't understand the implications of it and talk about it and think about it, no wonder we're bored. I say this every Sunday. But if you were to think about what it is we believe, it would take on some other aspect, right? But by the way, that's why we say it a lot, because we want to learn how to live it out. So we're going to talk about the nature of faith. That's number one. Number two, we're going to talk about the power of a living faith, because there's power in true, genuine belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's power. It's not just, a, it's not just something we say. And then lastly, I want us to see the overwhelming, I want you to taste how beautiful, how real, how lovely genuine faith is, because it's beautiful. So let's look at the nature of faith. What it's not. Verse 14. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Let me give you the short answer. The answer is no. James is entering into a hypothetical conversation based in reality. He's either had this conversation or he's had a conversation like it. And he begins with an example of a brother or sister in Christ Jesus who does not have the necessary things for life. They don't have adequate clothing, and they don't have, or they don't have enough food. This, this isn't like, uh, this is not like me when I can't find the right pair of jeans to put on. Ladies, this is not like you when you, when you tell your husband, I just don't have any clothes. Right? This is people that... Um, People that genuinely do not have enough to eat. People that do not have enough to wear. He says, if you say you have faith, if you claim to be a Christian, if you've never been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and you come upon someone who is in real need, and all you do is wish them well by saying, go in peace, be warm and filled, 
If that's all you can do, when you can actually do something for that person, James says, what benefit is that? And that, again, is not really a question. That is of no benefit. And look, a faith made up of religious platitudes is not real faith. It's not good. It's not what it means to believe. And, 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 and there's much more here than meets the eye. It's a call for us. James is expecting people who have a genuine faith, he's expecting them to know their brothers and sisters in Christ, to really know them. He's not only expecting them to know their brothers and sisters in Christ, he's expecting them to know themselves. Saying that you have faith and not doing something with what you know to be true, it's not any benefit to anybody. It's not any benefit to us. You want to know why it's not any benefit to us? Because we're lying to ourselves, if that's the kind of faith we have. And if we're lying to ourselves, we could, be, we could end up at the wrong place when Christ returns. It's of no benefit, that kind of faith. And obviously, it's not, not any benefit to, to somebody who's in need because we haven't done anything for them. It's like, it's like, I thought about this. I don't go to the doctor much, but I went to the doctor a few weeks ago. This, this is not my experience with my doctor. My doctor's really good, so don't think that. But it would be like going to a doctor who immediately understands what your problem is, and he could or she could fix your problem with, with a prescription, he tells you all about the medicine and all about the benefits of the prescription, and then at the end of the appointment... He kind of closes up his little notebook, says, good luck to you, and walks out. What would you say about a doctor that took care of you like that? I know what I would say. I would say, I don't think he's really a doctor, and I don't think he's any good for me. And look at it this way. If that doctor had a kingdom that he wanted to extend, it wouldn't happen, would it? So goes the Christian faith. If we believe, or say we believe, and don't live it out. James, 7, James verse 17, chapter 2, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. That's the first illustration of what faith is not like. But evidently, James has heard something else. He enters into this conversation, rephrased from his own side, and he says, you have faith and I have works. In other words, he's speaking to somebody who is good at compartmentalizing their faith. Right? There are two equally, val- equally valid expressions of what it means to believe. Somebody has faith and somebody has works. Now, of course, it is true that Paul talks about certain spiritual gifts and those are given to people differently. But realize James is not talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about genuine faith. And he says, show me, a, show me your faith apart from your works, but I will show you my faith by my works. After all, even the demons can show you a type of belief that doesn't elicit works. Right? You believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, it's great you know biblical truth. It's great that you know Deuteronomy 6. It's great that you can say it and you say you believe it. But knowing it is not enough. I want to say it like this. Believing something about God, about faith, 
and still doing whatever you want to do is just like the devil. That's what it's not, faith. James isn't saying anything new or radical here. He's saying something that's been said from as early as Genesis. That what you believe to be true will be worked out in your lives. The prophets said it. Paul says it. Jesus says it. And so does James. But he doesn't stop there. James does show us what genuine faith is. He says, let me show you, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. By the way, the word foolish here, it carries with it connotations of being shallow, empty, hollow. It also carries with it an idea of moral perversity. I think he's pointing back to the two illustrations that he's just used. If, if you just say you believe and you don't help people, then you're kind of shallow. If you know a lot of good stuff about who God is, but you don't live it out, you're wicked. Either way, it's not genuine faith. Literally, he says, faith without works, it doesn't work. It's entirely ineffective to save. This is where James gets very bold. He's talking about the life of Abraham. He's talking about the life of Rahab as pictures of genuine faith. And this is where he says something that might trouble some of you. He says, Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac. It's not under dispute. For those of you who know your Bibles, or maybe you've spent a lot of time here at Redeemer, it might rub you the wrong way, right? might rub you the wrong way because uh, even our community groups, they're studying Romans. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul says, you're justified by faith, not by works. Sounds like a contradiction, right? It's not. Let me explain it. And it's a couple of aspects to this. Let me t- tell you why James can say you are saved by works. Paul can say you are saved by faith. James is looking at salvation holistically. He's looking at our salvation as part of kingdom living, while Paul is emphasizing how we enter into the kingdom. You do, you do, have, to, you do have to understand that James really did understand the life of Abraham. He, he did know the book of Genesis. He did know the story about Abraham. He knew that Abraham was justified by faith, that he was saved by faith. He even quotes the same verse that Paul does in verse 23. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's not that James didn't understand the life of Abraham and how God worked in the life of Abraham. What James is doing is he's specifically picking a time in Abraham's life long after God had come and saved Abraham to help us understand what a living, genuine faith looks like. James is addressing the idea that, of course, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But our salvation, God's work in our lives, it continues to work. It's like this. James is saying, we have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. 
In fact, I, I do want to say this. James is looking at the final day of judgment when we stand before Jesus Christ. Paul is looking at that same judgment day that came with Christ on the cross, where yes, it is true that Jesus Christ took our judgment on the cross, and those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are truly saved. But it is also true that at the end of time, when Jesus Christ comes back, we will stand before him. And how we lived, what we've done, will be shown to the world. And that is true. Verse 22 explains it. Faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. And what James is saying, yes, we are justified once when we first believed. That's Paul. But James comes along and he says, we are going to be justified, vindicated, completely vindicated and made right totally when Jesus Christ returns. That's James. That's all true. You do realize that that, that he's using Abraham because Abraham always worked. He often messed up. He always sinned. We're not talking about earning our salvation we're talking, that, we're talking about our salvation makes us live a certain way. We not only see it in Abraham's life, but we see it in Rahab's life. You remember Rahab? Kind of a minor figure in the Bible who continues to be brought up over and over again. Rahab also believed, just like Abraham believed, even though she did something different, she still did something. When the spies come over, she says to the spies, we all know about your God who delivered you. That's her confession of faith. She knew the God who delivered his people. And and how does her knowing work its way out? She saves the spies from death. She put her faith into action. And what's really fascinating is, is James uses Abraham the father of the faith. He uses Rahab, this this lowly figure who happened to be from a pretty immoral background. And she says they both have faith. They both have faith because they had a genuine faith because the God in whom they believed, it moved them to action. Which which means, look, when when he uses, James uses Abraham and, and Rahab, what he's saying is men and women. He's saying young people and old people, whether you be six years old, eight years old, 20 years old, or 80 years old, whether you're good, whether you've been bad, whether you're from a moral background or an immoral past, whether you're rich or poor, there is no exceptions here. If you have a real living faith, it's going to be worked out in the way that you live. It has nothing to do with earning your salvation. It has everything to do with it being a genuine faith. Then James concludes or caps it all off with with basically saying, you can no no more separate faith and works as you can from your body and your spirit. If you're a human being, you have both. If you're a Christian, you have both. That's the nature of faith, okay? Not real hard. There are some implications to this genuine faith that I want us to talk about that I hope will answer many of the questions that you may have at this time. Genuine faith is powerful because what you do, because our works 
matter. This is the first aspect of the power of genuine faith. You need to understand, James has set the foundation. If you truly believe, you're going to be somebody different. You're going to do different things from the rest of the world. You're going to be looked at differently. And here's the implications. It's going to be different for you because genuine faith is powerful because what we do, our works matter. They matter for your own good. They matter for the good of the others, good of others, and they matter for God. They matter to our creator, the one who has saved us. Your life matters. You are significant. What you do when you walk out of these doors, it matters. It matters for your own well-being. It matters for the well-being of the world, and it matters to God. You ever gotten confused? I, my family, I, I wish I'd have known this when I was raising my children. Because we, we were big grace people, right? You're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And then my children would actually try to, to, try to work that out, and they would, they'd read their Bibles, or Josie would, would come to me, and she'd say, well, what about all this reward stuff that's in the Bible? What, what about all these rewards? You, you, go, go read the New Testament, and you'll read about rewards everywhere when you start looking for it. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, you know, when the Lord returns, we're all going to receive our commendation from God. Commendation means you've done something commendable. In 2 Corinthians 5, he's more blunt. He says, we're all going to appear, all. He's talking to, to the Corinthians, all of us, all right? We're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due him for what he's done in the body, whether it be good or evil. You just can't pretend like that's not there. And Jesus, I happened to just was reading through the Gospel of Matthew last week. And in, in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus talks about rewards all the time. I, I won't get into the details, but you go read it. You'll be re- rewarded by your, your Father in heaven. You'll be rewarded by your Father. We have this idea that rewards are always meritorious. That they earn something with God. But do you realize Paul's not talking about earning your salvation? Jesus isn't talking about earning your salvation. Otherwise, he wouldn't have come if you could earn your salvation. James is not talking about earning your salvation. What he's saying, not that you do certain things to make yourself right. They're not talking about that at all. He's saying you're going to do certain things because it's done for you. And when you start doing things, there's power in the doing because power comes from knowing that God is pleased. If you have a personal Savior in the person of Jesus Christ and you know that he's real, you're going to be happy if he knows If you know that he knows that you've just done something that makes him happy. And I don't want you to miss this point. God is genuine. I don't know what your idea of God is, but he took on flesh to show you that he's a person. And God is genuinely happy when we do good works. And there are rewards in our good works. And let me tell you what those rewards are. 
He's happy because our works are good for us and they're good for others. And that is the reward in and of itself. Our works bear fruit in our lives and the lives of others. And it's really, really powerful to know that what you do matters, not just for yourself, but for other people. Not in a way that makes you good, but it's because you're good and you have the resources to do things for other people. Not financial resources, not even resources to, to, to be great. It's, it's spiritual resources that have been given to you through Jesus Christ and you're using them for somebody other than yourself. It should make you feel good and that is a reward. So different from the way the rest of the world does good works. The rest of the world will go down to the soup kitchen, they'll feed people, and they'll feel real good when they go home, and they'll talk to their family about it, where a Christian ought to go down to the food kitchen and say, I just did that because that's really what God does to me, and I'm, I'm not that great, but God's just used me, and that's amazing. That's a reward. Your life matters, And there is power in living out what it is we say to be true. There's another aspect of power that that I I really want us to, I, I I need you to pay attention. When you live out your faith, you experience a power to grow in your faith. And I'm going to say it like this. I've been here two years now. Did you know that? Just last week. You guys can send me gifts later on. There are many among us who are not growing in their faith today, not because we don't know the gospel, not because we don't believe the gospel, because we are not acting on what we believe to be true. We're not trusting God with all of our beings because we are holding back. And because we are holding back, we aren't experiencing what it means to really rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I want to say it like this from a human standpoint. It's purely from a human standpoint. You're not giving God a chance to prove himself. Because he is trustworthy. I hesitated to use this, but I'm going to use this. You know why people don't give their money to, whether it be tithes or offerings to Redeemer Presbyterian Church or or one of the reasons why we don't give more money to downtown ministries or chosen for life ministries or all the many ministries that are worthy of, of money. You want to know why? Because we're afraid to trust God with that part of our lives. We're not sure that we'll be able to have a good retirement. Or we're not sure that when we get sick, we'll have enough money. And I'm not saying those are not valid ideas, but there are many among us who are not giving to the church to good, good causes because we don't trust God with our money. You want to know what my response is to that? You will never trust God with your money until you give it away. And listen, I, I need to tell you, I don't care about your money, and God doesn't care about your money. He cares about your heart, and he wants you to trust him, and he wants you to grow in your trust of him. And the only way that you know that you can trust him is to do it. And, 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 and listen, and I want you to understand, I'm not like those televangelists in Joel Osteen where, where you say, if you give your money, God will make sure that you get it back, because that's not what the Bible says. I remember when we were, Josie and I were young, and we, we, were, first, we were trying to figure out what it meant to tithe, and uh, the refrigerator broke Daggummits, because we weren't tithing. So we started tithing. You know what happened? The washer broke. (laughs) 
You do realize that what I believe is happening in the book, in the letter of Philippians, the Philippians have finally given, given something that Paul was in great need. I, I don't know if his finances or not, but they've, they've finally renewed their fellowship with him. They've given something to him, and now they are in need. And you know what Paul says? Good. Because now you know that you can trust God in all things. That's what that verse is about. Oh, you're weak? Good. Because now you know that God will be your strength. Oh, you're poor? Good. Because now you know that God will be your riches. We're not growing in the faith. I I promise you, I I talked to a lot of people back in that corner office. And there are more people here than any other church that I've been in that know the gospel. And they believe the gospel. They say they believe the gospel. And then they walk out and it doesn't matter. Abraham's faith was active along with his works. His faith was completed by his works. In other words, Abraham's faith through his obedience, it actually grew up. I I, I know, I'm doing, I'm good, I'm good. Let me ask you this. Why does, look, I picked Genesis 22 because that's a really hard passage. And if you were thinking as Rob was reading, it's like, wow. It's awesome. we, we, should, we could probably have a whole summer series on the life of Abraham, on not just that passage. But, but have you asked yourself, because I know some of you have, why does God ask Abraham to offer up his son Isaac to kill him? Have you asked that question? I, I know a lot of people that get hung up on that question. I can't believe God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his, his son. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make, uh, make you grapple with this. I believe we ask that question because it distracts us from the question that we ought to be asking. You, you do realize that God is God and he knew exactly what was going to happen with, with Abraham and Isaac when God asked him to do that. Not only that, you do realize that God never wear asks us to kill our own son. Yeah, I, I can, one thing I'm very sure of, if you come to me and you say, oh, Doc, God told me to sacrifice my, my firstborn child or my secondborn child, I'm going to tell you, no, he didn't. Do you realize that God never asks anybody else this? Do you realize that? Uh, with one exception, by the way. He asks this of himself when he sacrifices his own son for us. But nowhere else does this come up. So the real question needs to be, why was Abraham willing to do it? That's what you don't want to ask. You want to know why God would ask Abraham to do it. What you don't want to ask is, why was Abraham willing to do it? When it comes to the pivotal, this pivotal point in Abraham's life, God asks something unbelievable. It is a complete surrender of his own will and desire for his life. It's given up to God. And it's part of the process of what it means to grow in our faith. Let me me read to you a quote from Fleming Rutledge. Abraham had been following and trusting God for so long that it had become a habit. You do realize that. God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing. And then in Genesis 15... After, after Abraham doing some things, Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham and says, um, Abraham believed God. He was saved. Then in Genesis 16, Abraham screws up. Foul, he sins. 
Then in Genesis 17, God comes back to him and says, Hey, Abraham, you really do need to obey me since you trusted me. And then the rest of Abraham's life is just kind of learning to live with God. Trust him. And then he gets to this point in Genesis 22. Abraham would have been following and trusting God for so long that it had become a habit. He's ready to submit even before he hears what the command is because of the God in whom he believed. He seems to believe that God was in his right, within his rights to ask this. And on the next day, instead of lying in bed, coming up with excuses, Abraham cannot get up too early to do the will of God. James is trying to show us what real faith looks like. And it's not offering up your son on the altar, but it is doing certain things. Our faith is not simply an idea, but it is concrete. It is tangible. Our faith works. And we're supposed to do what God calls us to do. And it's supposed to be all sorts of crazy things according to the world. Because there's power in genuine faith. All right, so look, we understood what faith is and is not. We've seen examples of this living faith in Abraham and Rahab. We've said that there is power in this, in this living faith. It's good for us. It's good for others. It makes us matter. It helps us understand what we were created for. Not only that, it helps us grow in our faith. We become, we, we become more trusting in this God who saved us. Lastly, Living by faith means you begin to taste the beauty of what it means to be a friend with God. Abraham, at the end of verse 23, is called a friend of God. So it's like this. Abraham believed God, and he was declared righteous, and he was God's friend, right? Abraham was declared a friend. And because God is God, he can make that declaration, and it's true. The rest of Abraham's life was learning to live with God in friendship. At first, it's simply a declaration. In the rest of Abraham's life, he's learning to experience what it means to live in friendship with the God who created him and saved him. Let me say it like this. We all know, I don't know if you have best friends or not, okay? but we all know what it's like to desire a best friend. Someone who you can trust for anything and everything. And if you've ever had a friend that even came close, you knew that it was so special that, that, that since they would do anything for you, you wanted to do anything for them. Abraham knew that God was willing to do anything for him, even if it meant dying in his place, because that's what an ultimate friend would do. And that understanding of God as a friend made him willing and able to do whatever was necessary to be a friend back to God. See, we have this idea that friendship is always getting something from somebody else. Friendship is a complete surrender of their own desires for their lives, for the well-being of the other person. And Abraham was to surrender Abraham was able to surrender up his own will for his life because he knew that he had a God that would take care of everything for him. There's nothing better. All right, let me say it like this. It's one thing to say you have a friend. It's a whole different matter to live with that friend in in absolute trust. 
But there's nothing better than to experience life with a friend like that. God was Abraham's friend because he saved him from himself. Abraham knew it, and because he knew it, he lived in light of it, and he was able to do whatever God wanted him to do. This is not about works, folks. This is about whether or not we have genuine faith. And it doesn't mean that you won't struggle with not wanting to do things. But it does mean that you're learning to trust your God so much that all these things that you are holding on to, you can freely loosen your grips, slowly loosen your grips, give them back to God, allow Him to do with those things whatever it is He wills, and He will take care of you. And when you have that resource inside you, we won't just sit on these pews saying, oh, God has done a lot for me. We'll say, oh, God has done a lot for me so much so that I can't help but go out and do it for other people. Living faith is a life completely surrendered to the one who has saved you. It's so good, it's safe to give everything back to him. Living faith gives you power. Power to obey, power to serve other people. It helps you grow in your faith and ultimately you rest in your friendship. God is no longer an enemy, he's a friend. And when you have a friend like God, and we sing it all the time, do we believe it? When you have a friend like Jesus... There's nothing that he won't ask you to do that you won't try to do. That's what genuine faith is. Let's just start shucking some corn, biting down into it, see what God does. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the blessings of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I I thank you for our heavenly Father who, who has has come to us and never let us go. And I pray that our faith would grow this morning. Uh, For those of us who already know you, I pray that we'd grow. For those that don't know you, I pray that they would take that step now. I pray that they would just give up on themselves and trust you to take care of them. Work in our lives, work in our church, work in this world. We ask you now in Jesus' name, amen.